Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The English word which captures the point of Christianity is atonement. And the word means what it sounds like, at one, to bring together. There is alienation and hostility between people and God, between people among people, between people and the earth. And Christ has come to end that hostility. And alienation and hostility then are healed in the work of Christ. And the relationships between God and people, between people with the earth, is brought into harmony and love is the goal. The past two Sundays I've talked about the wrong answer. The primary human problem is not, as John Calvin portrayed it, the wrath of God. It is not, as Anselm of Canterbury pictured it, that God's honor is impugned by the breaking of the law. And the biblical focus is not on future punishment, nor is it that some necessary punishment is required to satisfy or propitiate God. Neither God nor his wrath nor his punishment nor his righteousness nor his law is the problem. God's not the problem. Sin and evil are the problem and we've described that then in the problem of alienation. So the confusion concerning law, righteousness, punishment is how each of these relate to the definition of this primary problem. And we all, I think, recognize that there is destructiveness, violence, harm, the thing we call evil. But the question I want to raise and answer today, what is this root problem? How can we describe it? And how specifically does the work of Christ address this root problem? And so, in short, this alienating power is linked to a particular orientation, to death. And this is what Christ defeats in his death and resurrection. And it's what we defeat in following him. So let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4 to 9. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. This is the resolution 
to the problem. In chapter 5, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. There's the problem. However, even to say that death is the primary problem, we may miss the point in this chapter. That is, sin and death are not equated, though they're aligned. The emphasis should fall upon the reign of death, the orientation to death included in its reign. That is, its reign over us. It controls us. As Paul subsequently explains in chapter 5, verse 21, sin reigned in death. So that the reign of death is inclusive of the response to this mortality, to this human limit. The biological destiny of the body, the mortality though, is not the problem. But the human response to death is the problem. The reign of death. I think it can manifest as our discussion today. It may manifest in greed. It may manifest in hoarding. It may manifest politically. It may manifest socially, interpersonally. It may be experienced as the antagonism between male and female, between races, between nation states, between tribes, or even between religions. That there is alienation and there is hostility. And of course it may be experienced between the individual and God or between the corporate body and God. But let me repeat, the manifestation of the problem is not the thing itself. And what we're trying to describe here is a negative. It's very difficult to describe a negative thing. The negating power of death which we come to embody in evil or sin. Which may be why the consequences of the problem so often stand in for the problem itself. You know, the absence of peace, well, that's violence. The absence of life, that's death. The absence of love, that's hatred. The absence of relationship is alienation. And this certainly has a kind of punishing effect. But this punishment or wrath or this problem, it's not a destiny. It's not a primary attribute of God or of us or even of the, the universe. It's a secondary quality to the thing that we're describing, sin and evil. And the idea here is that evil is a parasite. It can only exist off of the good, as a negation of the good. And evil is to be found then in the goodness that it perverts, you know, that life is destroyed by it, that peace is violated by it, that grace is refused by it. Maybe this negativity is easiest to grasp at the big level, at the corporate level. I think this is what idolatry is, you know, the image of the idol is essentially nothing. Paul says the idol in and of itself is nothing. But of course we invest this nothing with supreme importance. And the idol marks the spot where nothing would be transformed into an absolute something. 
But of course it's also the ultimate frustration because the idol never gives up its secrets. It never makes imminent the promised transcendence. But it stands as a kind of impossibility to achieve what is desired. But isn't that just a description of the human condition? You know, many things can serve in place of the idol. Money in the modern economy is actually a purely imaginary value. We're no longer on the gold standard, so there's not even that. It signifies no actually existing entity. And yet in capitalism, it marks the supreme value. And so one who loves money is compared to an idolater in the Bible because they're both doing the same thing. They're putting a supreme value on that which is nothing. Maybe nationalism you know, requires continual human sacrifice to ensure freedom and to lend it some sort of final substance so that many people, that's the meaning that they find in life. Maybe pop culture or even democracy, you know, the idea of the acclamation of the crowd, that the glory kind of, of power, it almost has a kind of palpable existence which is non-existent itself and we often think that must be the ultimate reality. Each object is not an actually existing thing and yet it seems to mark the final goal, the ultimate value or what people just spend their lives living to attain. That is, they can never attain this thing. This living death holds out an impossible object or an object of desire. And this we imagine, oh, if I could have this, that would be the source of my life or would be substantive. I think this is fairly easy to understand. And there's already the recognition this is a kind of lie, it's a delusion. This is the original sin, the knowledge of good and evil. It never really gives its godlike promises. But there is some aspect of this that's more difficult, and that's what Paul is addressing in Romans. And that is our personal and individual participation in this thing, in this structure. This is very hard to comprehend what if that's your own image, the object of our desire? The word image, selah, in the Hebrew, it's the same, we're created in the image of God, but that's also the image of the idol. The self-image and the idolatrous image can pose the same kind of lure. And this interior logic is what Paul is addressing in Romans 5, 6, and 7. And it just reverberates and confounds so that it's no easy task to describe how the pursuit of ourself, which already sounds odd, but this is what Jesus says, right, in all four Gospels. He says that if you're pursuing yourself, he who would save his life loses it. It's an odd saying, and yet he repeats it and it's thematic. That is that we're engaged in a project that is death-dealing by its very nature. And of course the opposite of that is that he who would lose his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Usually when Paul is talking about this negative thing that is evil or sin, he pairs it with a positive element. So when 
in Ephesians, the verse that Larry read this morning, he talks about formerly we walked in darkness, we walked in death, but now we have life in Christ. Or he talks about alienation, but he'll always pair it with reconciliation. He'll talk about hostility, but he'll pair it with peace. But in Romans 7, Paul doesn't do this. He sustains a prolonged description of the dynamic of sin and he nowhere appeals in the chapter to its opposite. The negative force from within this sinful perspective, the way he's describing it, it gives forth in a kind of unreality. We might call it an unbirth, a supposed essence. And it's an essence between two antagonistic laws or two parts of the self. And these two laws, and Paul describes it, remember we're already dealing in deception, but he describes one in the mind and the other in the body. And he creates this picture of a struggle within the individual that at the end of Romans 7, verse 24, this is kind of the conclusion. He's describing this human struggle within himself and he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And the wretched I, the word that he uses there is actually the word ego. I in Greek is just ego. This I arises with a lack of self-consciousness. That is in the beginning throughout chapter 7, verse 8 to 11, it's a purely negative process. There are no cognitive verbs. There's no self-consciousness. And the ego makes its appearance only in coming up against or in resistance to the law. But of course the question is what law? This law is not an externally imposed force. It's subjectively imposed. It arises as subjection to a force within us. Well, you've heard the saying that we're our own worst enemies. Oh, Paul is saying that. So that it is not mere subjection. It's not God's law, but it's actually a law we impose upon ourselves. So it's a kind of self-subjection. So that one part of the I in chapter 7 stands opposed to another part. You know, he cries out in this struggle that I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. And we might picture this as a kind of struggle for existence. In coming out of a kind of non-existent reality. Now, this is the Freudian picture actually. The ego emerges from and continues to be partially situated in the id. That's confusing, but all that is describing in a complicated way, I think is what Paul is describing, is this ego or this I is a fiction. It's not real. It's not really who Paul is. But it is a fiction which one would make true. It's an imaginary entity to which he would give birth. The subject takes itself as an object. And this object needs to be established, needs to be brought to life, needs to be given substance. And the self as object, there's this dividedness, and the picture is to bring it into oneness with the self. 
it's an impossible task because it's split by definition and the goal is to fuse it together. And so self-difference or self-objectification must be overcome. And yet this self-antagonism is the very definition of self-experience. I told you it was complicated. He's going deep. And all of this simply articulates the feeling of incapacity with the ego. Maybe we could state it like this, that the self in chapter 7 is its own symptom. Maybe this relates, and I think he is talking about Genesis 3, that in the ego in Genesis 3, Adam says, I ran, I was afraid, I hid, I was naked. That he comes to this I, the word never appears in the Bible before Adam utters the I, the ego. There is no I in Genesis prior to that. There is no I in Romans prior to Romans 7, 7. And then it appears about 20 times. The fear and shame, the alienation is connected to the arising of this ego. And it's a purely negative entity. It's an absence. One way of approaching this then, and I think that's what Paul is doing in chapter 7, he's recognizing the impossibility of what he says in chapter 7, 7. Look at that verse. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Covet is just an old word for desire. You shall not desire. The question is, what is Paul referencing here? He seems to be referencing the Old Testament. There is no command in the Bible, you shall not desire. It's not there. The command not to covet, it seems to allude to the 10th commandment of the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. The question is, why does Paul shorten it? He cuts it short so that the objects of desire, which are named in the law, they're absent here. The original commandment, you know, there's a whole list of things. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But as Paul pictures his discovery of the commandment, it's almost like he comes on it too late. It just says, you shall not desire. And it causes what it forbids in Paul's own explanation. You know, it may be reflecting both Genesis 3, the prohibition, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or it may be referencing the Ten Commandments. Paul says the law is holy, just, and good. These laws are not inherently problematic, but it becomes problematic. And that's what Paul is describing in his orientation to it. These laws don't necessarily generate their own transgression. Yet in Paul's description of sin and law at 7-7, they have already been fused in this kind of obscene of desire. Thou shalt not desire gives rise to desire. It would be sort of like 
thou shalt not think of pink elephants. The command gives rise to what it is forbidding. Sin, Paul says in verse 8, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. The command produced the desire. And so Paul's shorter version of the command lends itself to being applied, I think, to a distortion, maybe two distortions of the law. You can pursue the law, and that's what he's describing throughout chapter 7. You can be zealous for the law, or you can transgress the law. But these two positions toward the law, they actually generate their opposite. And this is Paul's point. The more zeal that you have for the law, the more desire, and the more desire, the more zeal. One can try to gain life through the commandment, zeal for the law, but one's zealous desire is already a transgression giving rise to death. We're trapped. That's what Paul's describing. We're trapped in this thing. Forbidden desire literally isolates the letter of the law. And Paul explains in Corinthians, the letter kills. And actually the word letter there, scripture kills when it's isolated. You know, think of the command, thou shalt not kill. Well, you can isolate a part of that and get the opposite. Kill, isolated from thou shalt not. Covetousness is isolated from the particular objects and from the intent of the law. Sinful desire reduces the law, voided of its context and purpose. It narrows it down to a deadly letter. It prompts the transgression it would forbid. And that's what Paul says. Where the law is sin, sin will establish the law. Doing evil is a means of establishing the good. And doing the good is realized only in its identity with evil. Paul says in verse 21, evil is present in me, the one who wants to do the good. Paul recognizes throughout that he cannot actually, you know, he's talking about this split within himself, but he says he knows he can't actually split his mind from his body. He is this mind-body. Nonetheless, one who embodies this law is split, or seemingly split, in this struggle of law-keeping. Verse 19, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Paul depicts subservience to this law as a war in which the law of the body is a separate entity. In 721, another law waging war against the law of my mind as the law divides and pits the self against the self. I think it's just an example of an inherent antagonism that comes with any dualism. The mind does not and cannot exist apart from the body and the body cannot exist apart from the mind. There can't be an incomparable difference or there would be no point of comparison. You know, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the problem with that system. The good is known through the evil and the evil through the good, but they become interdependent. And that's what Paul's describing, that he has this antagonistic system 
that is definitive of himself that is by its very nature involved in this struggle. If he would solve this struggle in the way that the law would want him to, he would destroy himself. And that's what he says. Who will save me from this struggle? That is the problem, is the delusion, the kind of mind-body opposition. There's this opposed pairs that are necessary to one another. So that one side of the opposition is, is in the service of the other. And so the imagery is not of possessing the law. Maybe that's the desire, to have life through the law. But of being possessed by a force that kills and deceives. And Paul describes the process of being reduced to a cadaver. He's describing this alien force has found an opportunity, an opening. It came upon me, he says, reducing him to a sight of desire and death. The law of sin has colonized my members, in verse 23, and I am at war with myself, Paul says, and I'm losing. <laughs> you can't win a battle with yourself. Sin came alive as an animate force, and I died. That's the problem. I mean, maybe you can't understand the problem, apart from the solution. But that's chapter 6. Paul's already provided the solution. I think we only really understand sin through salvation. To die with Christ in baptism is to be joined to Christ. And it is to reorient oneself to death and the law. And the likeness of form of Christ in his incarnation mediates or makes possible and the word here is a, the word joining to which defeats the death dealing alienation you know we're alienated we're not joined in ourselves or with God or with other people and what Romans 6 is describing it undoes what Romans 7 is describing in verse 5 to 7 of chapter 6 he says if we have become united with him our problem is we're disunited. In the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our problem is we have an orientation to death that's alienating. And this is being undone. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. We've died to death. We've died to this orientation. In order that our body of sin, this struggle, this agonistic conflict, this mental disease that is the human condition is undone in Christ so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And the idea of being joined or united with him is of being, the word here is knit together, being made to grow together. To unite as infusing or healing a wound. To plant together. We are united together with one another. With God in the body of Christ. United with his likeness. Ends the alienation characterizing sin. And here the gap is closed between the subject and object. The image or the likeness of the idol. There is no gap between the subject and the image of Christ. The alienation is overcome in this likeness or participation 
in the likeness of Christ. This gap within us, the gap with God, the gap with other people, the gap with the earth, the objectifying gap is healed. To die with Christ is to be joined to a form and this is what Paul describes in 6 and then he'll pick it up in 8 that we're joined to a form in which we're conformed to his image without alienation without this objectification the form of the subject in Christ displaces the form of the subject under the law this is what we were created for is to be the children of God and that's what this is describing for the law of life in the spirit chapter 8 verse 2 sets you free from the law of sin and death there's the gospel in one sentence there is a suspension of the alienation of the law and a reorientation to death chapter 8 verse 1 therefore there is now no condemnation what condemnation we've just been describing it this self-condemnation this condemnation that we live in under sin and evil in which we would punish ourselves Paul proclaims victory over the forces of evil that work through the force of the law and sin's deception. The condemnation, you know the word here, catechrema, that's a curse, is suspended. Of course we're cursed in being alienated from the source of life, God. This is suspended, this death sort of lifestyle is displaced by life, life in the spirit. And that's the conclusion. Chapter 5, going back, Paul describes a superabundance of grace. He says in 5.15, If by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. There's an abundance of life. There's an abundance of love and grace. And the reality of God and His grace, peace, wholeness, life, this has the final word. This is the work of atonement. This is the point of Christianity. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.